Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host and a documentary filmmaker myself, Christian Taylor. I'm typically joined by my co-host Jason Rugg, but he is actually taking care of his grandmother today. So we wish him and his family well during this time. Uh, I am super excited to have two amazing filmmakers return this week. Uh, it's Mark and Carrie Pedry, who have just, um, you know, finished a film. It feels like you just finished it because you're still kind of going uh, called Dear Sirs. Uh, we are so well, uh, happy to have you guys here. So welcome. Yeah. Thanks, Thank you. Christian. Thanks so much. Twice in one season. This is great. Yeah. This <laughs> conversation. Awesome. Was amazing. Yeah, we have so much to learn from you. I just have been so impressed with your film. Let me give your bios really quick. Um, Mark is an expedition-based documentary filmmaker and writer from Rock Springs, Wyoming. Uh, Carrie is uh, the producer of this film. She's a scientist turned producer who got her start working as a scientific film consultant while she worked as a materials chemist researcher at the University of Southern California. Together, they run Burning Torch Productions, which is a boutique film production company that focuses on character-driven stories from the backcountry and backroads of the world. Their films have played at international festivals on PBS uh, National and on major streaming platforms. It's an amazing resume. We are so happy to have you here. We do hope we can learn from you. Today, if you're listening to this for the first time, please go back and listen to uh, the last podcast with Mark and Carrie uh, just to kind of get caught up on the film. We're not going to spend a lot of time now on the backstory of the film. What I'd like to do is talk to Carrie about producing and the challenges that she, the challenges that she faced there, uh, a little bit more about the technical filmmaking and the cinematography, and we're going to talk about the storytelling today. Uh, so, Carrie, I want to start with you. Um, how difficult was it to produce this film? And, uh, you know, tell me what challenges that you faced and what lessons you may have learned that our audience could benefit from. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think um, the most challenging part is uh, the fact that it is such uh, an unknown personal story. So when we, we first started and you're looking at funding something like this, um, it's really difficult to convey what it is to, you know, a grant or other funding sources. And I think what we, you know, we thought we see the story, we know the importance. Um, but when we're writing into specifically film grants, it's just hard when you don't have that, like, you know, celebrity name attached or any big story attached. It's, it's, you know, it's relatively unknown. And so I think what was hard is we started by trying to get film grants and it's hard when you get told no and no and no. Um, and so what we did is we pivoted more to more local grants. So we worked a lot with the state of Wyoming at the Humanities Council um, which I think for films that are, that have a tie to a specific location, those kind of grants can be really helpful when you first get started because you're telling a story from that place. Um, and so that's how kind of we started our funding in addition to some wonderful crowdfunding supporters. Um, and the way we uh, focused on that is we said, you know, we're going on this film, this bike journey to tell this story. And I think, what crowdfunding backers really like is to see the, the, you know, their efforts or their funds being put to work. So we were like, you're going to get us across Germany. And they really did. They really did. Um, we funded the bike route through crowdfunding and then used the grants to help support 
um, the, you know, the harder costs of, of filmmaking that maybe aren't so relatable to people who are going to crowdfund, um, like insurance and <laughs> title yeah. searches and yeah, lawyer, things, you know, like lawyers what, and accountants yeah, and um, post-production, that kind of stuff is really hard to, you know, get people jazzed about, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I think finding funding was a tough thing and Mark and I didn't pay ourselves either. So, um, we just kind of scrapped it together and then hoped that on the, on the other hand, on the other side, the distribution would, would help cover those costs. Um, so that's on the funding side, on the side of like actual production, I think uh, I spoke about it in the previous episode about how we had decided between crewing up over there in Europe and going bare bones with just the two of us. And that was a tough decision to make because we went unsupported. We carried all the camera gear, the computer, the hard drives, everything on our bikes. Um, so thinking of from the producing mindset of like, what if we drop a camera? What if we drop a computer? Which we did. Um, oh, wow. Are we going to log footage? And so in the end, I think the decision was made out of the understanding that without having to take care of a whole crew, we would have more time to focus on the story. Mark would have more time to focus on his process of going through this. Um, and we, we trusted each other. I think that's, you know, the, was one of the major deciding factors. Like you've got to trust your people. And we just weren't plugged into the film, uh, industry in Germany or in France to, to crew up. That's, that's another big giant hurdle to get over. Um, so yeah, we, we planned the route. We planned a six week bike route, um, with everything, you know, scattered about and it didn't go anything to plan. Wow. So <laughs> that yeah. producing was, um, you know, it was helpful to have that scaffold, but we were so flexible. We were, you know, we knew we would have to be, but um, I would say it went probably 20% maybe the way we thought it was going to, um, which I think as a filmmaker, you have to be that way, especially in documentary. Especially in documentary. So I want to back up a little bit. Talk to me about where you did your crowdfunding and how long of a campaign you did. Um, I would, okay, so we did it on Kickstarter, um, and I think we did a month if I remember. Okay. And why did you choose Kickstarter over Indiegogo or Seed and Spark or, uh, Give Butter? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I would say the most, the top reason is because we'd used it before and we were familiar with it. Um, and I think, you know, you have the, the motivation of, if you don't get it, you don't get it. Um, so I think that helped a little bit. Um, but to be honest, it was really like, we've, we've worked with this before and, um, we, we knew how it worked and, and how much were you able to raise through that? I think we raised 15 grand Okay, for the, for the bike journey and the physical production there, um, which would have been nowhere near enough if we had an actual crew. So mm, that's true. We, yeah. So it kind of was, you know, Funding was funding and logistics are the reasons that we went bare bones. Um, but one thing about crowdfunding that we, I think, didn't think about so much before we promised these prizes is how much effort you put into the, the yeah. rewards. And I think a warning to filmmakers out there, be, 
think about how much time it takes you to write, say, a postcard. And then if you're promising 500 postcards, just realize that. Yeah, you need um, to extend your trip. Or, or if you, you know, one of your um, rewards is something that you have to ship. How much does it cost then to ship that? Yeah. Um, all these types of things. Uh, I, we did okay on that, but I just, you know, that's something to think of before you go and promise all these. Well, things. and I tell people if people want to do a Kickstarter or Indiegogo, whatever it is, a crowdfunding campaign, producing that crowdfunding campaign is similar to producing your film. You're going to have to produce video pieces. You're going to have to write. You're going to have to put a timeline together. And, you know, you have all those pieces that you have to, quote unquote, produce in order to actually raise that money. And that alone takes time. And so then when you throw the perks on top of that, it really is a huge endeavor. Um, And so you have to think about the ROI uh, of that endeavor. Um, So you did it for a month. Yeah. And I think the other thing with uh, what you're putting in is, you put all this effort into building the campaign. And then when it launches, you are on it. You are like, you know, doing social media, you're, you know, trying to get people in you're on edge the whole time because you're worried you're not going to make the money. So it's like a month of stress and there's a dip in the middle where it like the funding stops and you're like, Oh my gosh. And then you have to like kick it into gear and be creative at the end. Um, Would you do it again? I, I think I would. I think, um, the problem with me saying that is that this film was so personal. Mark had to do a lot of the promotion and, and Mm. like, you know, video footage himself of like talking about the story and everything. So it's a lot on if, if you're going to include the director or someone on camera, other than the producer who doesn't necessarily have to do that. It's a lot to ask of them too. Um, And it doesn't allow for them to put their brain on the creative side of the project because you're focused on this first for so long, for an entire month or so. Right. That being said, the reason I say that I would do it again is because it's a great way to build an audience. It's a really great way to show people who you are behind the work. People buy into what who you are, not ex- not necessarily what you do. They want to know who it is behind. Um, and so I think in building an audience, if you don't already have one, it's a great way to do that. And it's a great way to put yourself out there as an artist. Okay. And so you mentioned um, that you're, you were setting your goals for a six week bike trip, but it didn't actually turn out that way. So how many weeks uh, did it take? Um, Was it more money than you expected? How did you deal with those challenges? So it, it, I, I maybe misspoke. It did take six weeks. It just, the planning stages of how long we thought we could bike every day and all of that shifted around so, so much. Um, and I think the main thing that we didn't realize is how much filming we could do in a day, which is not that much because okay. you have to bike to get, you know, when your vehicle is a bike, it takes a long time to get to a place. It was also Germany in the winter. So there's not that much daylight to begin with. And when, you know, we would stop to film, you get very cold fast. So Mark fingers, he, he got frostbite on one of his fingers with the drone at some point. So these, you know, we were thinking, you know, we're bike, we're cyclists. We can easily go 50 miles in a day. I don't think we ever did 50 miles in actuality (laughs) because you just, you know, as you're filming, it takes up so much time um, to stop, set the shot, you know, all of that. Then you have to find a place to warm up because you're frozen fingers. (laughs) Um, So I think that all, as we went on, we had six weeks to get our bearings. And I think by the end of it, we kind of had, had that, but 
at the beginning, we were definitely slapped in the face with some unexpected, you know, like the one of the first scenes when we're in Europe is realizing that we should not stay on the top tippy top floor with no elevator. Oh my goodness, you taking your bikes up that walk up was just, I could not believe it. Was it like four flights, five flights? I think it was like five or six. Yeah. And this was uh-huh. my fault because I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so great. We were in Metz, which we had planned to stay for a week to do, to, you know, go around the whole area. And so I was like, let's, you know, find a place that's really cool. That's up on the top. We can see things. And it, you know, you, I just didn't. It was also really cheap. It was, it was cheap <laughs> because it was the attic of a place. Um, but, you know, when you're producing a film that is, you have to have your bike with you at all the time, you know, you just don't think of these things until you're in the moment. And yeah, that was a lot of carrying up and down of those bikes, (laughs) not in a, in a very tight space. Okay. Well, if you um, think about the producing of the whole overall thing from the beginning to the end, uh, what did you feel like was your biggest success? Uh, And what did you feel like um, was your biggest failure in the sense of, I wouldn't do that again, or I learned from that failure. Hmm. Yeah. Let me think. Can I throw one thing in while you're thinking? Sure. So when is it a failure? Carrie, no. Well, <laughs> I think it's an, ad- ad- an adaptation that's really great. Um, okay. I'll just throw it out there. Then you can run with it. When we started this film, like I said, we both had full-time jobs. It was a huge risk to jump off and do this. And my pitch was, let's just go for it. I promise it'll take one year and then we can go back to our day jobs. And what happened? It took four years. <laughs> oh, it took four years. Took four years. But the, oh, wow. the reason it took four years, um, it could have taken a lot less time. But when when Mark was editing, that's when COVID hit. Oh, and so yeah. we sort of just made the decision that, you know, we don't want to release this on, t- on, on commuter- computer screens. Um, so we just took the time and Mark worked with the composer to really, you know, develop the score and then also gave himself time to edit. Um, yeah, I have to interject. There's no way it could have taken less than four years. <laughs> okay. okay. COVID, nothing, nothing would have sped up. We could project. have had a film in. The version that we had time. after one year was the worst version of this film that was ever made. And no <laughs> one will ever see it. I think that and was one of my successes. I said, this is, this isn't good. We got to throw it away. Start over. So. Good. That was a good thing. It was hard though. Like I said, feedback is tough, but it was a version where Mark was sitting on camera. You, you can see it in the trailer. He's there's an interview with him talking. Um, and it, it was just, it was just horrible. He was just, you know, he, he, it wasn't personal. It felt like there was another person making this film about us. Yeah. As um, opposed to me making it about my grandpa. So I can fix that problem because it, uh, you know, you were on camera some, not a ton, You, but you were narrating this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that goes into the storytelling part of it. Um, if you don't mind, I kind of want to jump to that real quick. Uh, storytelling is such an important part of documentaries in terms of the beginning, middle and end, the actual how you tell the story. Uh, and then on, you know, there's the script and then there is the way visually you tell the story. Um, talk to me, Mark, about the story development, um, you know, and how you went from this first version that was a bad one to now this fantastic one that's winning awards. Yeah. So I think that that's also tied to maybe Carrie uh, producing one of the the biggest 
successes of it was trusting that there is a, a version that's great deep down in in this mud that we were sifting through and not giving up on the project. Because I think a lot of times, especially when a project doesn't have enough money, you've seen a cut, it's been a year, you kind of feel like, okay, we did the thing. I'm sure this will get into like one obscure festival and then let's move on. Um, but kind of trusting that maybe there was something special deep down. We just had to surround the director with tools and support and tissues and, and everything else <laughs> to, to maybe uh, lift up through that to find the version that was right. And I think that's where a lot of the big storytelling um, mechanisms came from. Um, though one of the things which the film really leans on a lot that was there from the very beginning was this aesthetic of pulling up these letters and photos into the frame, um, very, you know, hands-on, uh, as if, you know, it's the point of view of the viewer in my shoes, looking at these photos for the first time. And that was something that was, um, you know, it's like the simplest thing you can imagine. It's not, I didn't invent it, you know, thousands of people have done it before, but there's something so pure about just pulling an artifact close and examining it. There's an intimacy in the handwriting. You know, it's, it's like you're looking into this person's eyes uh, through the pencil that they used to write this very personal letter 75 years ago. So for me as the grandson of Silvio experiencing that firsthand, I just thought, you know, if there's any way to translate this to an audience, it'll work. Like I, <laughs> if people can feel how I felt in his office that night, reading these letters for the first time, um, there, then this film will work. So I think that uh, was a brilliant stroke because it really did make me feel like I was experiencing that for the first time that, that, you know, flush of discovery. And I think all of us in our lives have had some moment like that where we found something we're like, wow. And we discover it. And so you can remember what you felt like and then understand what you felt like. So yeah, I thought that was a genius storytelling device. Yeah. And there's, it's, it was a, a little bit complicated as a documentarian to decipher, I guess, how we would actually implement that because in a sense it's reenactment. I mean, I didn't immediately bring the camera, set up the lights and start going through this the night I discovered it. Um, it was trying to replicate what that was like. And when you get into reenacting things, uh, it can be a little bit of a slippery slope of like, okay, what is this is still real? What is the truth of this moment? And um, if you look at those shots, uh, there's something that like, you know, seeing it now on a big screen, I look at my hands and I'm like, man, your hands are kind of like, they're not, they're not like uh, model hands. Definitely. Like you could have done a manicure or something. <laughs> had you have known this was going to be on movie screens, but then also, that's the part of the film that's, that's the authenticity of it, that we didn't go back and polish it in every way. And, you know, even with the score, that was always a big part of the conversation was, you know, I want to hear the hands of the person playing this instrument. I don't want to have the, the most sophisticated digital reproduction of a, the best Steinway that was ever made. You know, I want to hear James playing it on your piano uh, in your studio, because that sounds like the one that I have in my house that my grandpa listened to all those years. Yeah, that that's just super cool. What you just said reminded me of a of an incredible uh, scene that I really want to know how you did. The scene where you're sitting outside your grandfather's house and you're playing the accordion, and you that's guys right. are moving into his into his house, 
uh, how the heck did you do that scene? And just for those of you who haven't seen the movie, basically he's sitting there playing this accordion while he is also walking into his grandfather's house, carrying boxes along with Carrie. So talk to me about how you did that. Yeah, that was really fun. And there's a few moments in the film where we sort of break the more serious uh, documentarian and we go into kind of this hybrid artistic, uh, I don't know, maybe magical realism in that case. But essentially, yeah, you're right. We cloned me on camera. One of me was playing the accordion. The other was helping Carrie move into the house. And from a technical perspective, um, what we did is we just had the camera on a tripod. So it was locked off. So nothing was moving except for us as the subjects within the frame. And as long as we didn't overlap on either you know, character, we were able to kind of carve out that space of me playing accordion and then overlay the other and side. Just stick it in. Yeah. Um, I loved it. From like the story perspective, we thought, okay, there's two ways to do this. We can just show us bringing boxes in and, you know, narrate what that felt like in the moment. Or we could add this other third layer, which is kind of the, the magic of why we go to the movies, which is, you know, what, what's kind of the metaphor that's happening here. And in that scene, um, there's this childhood version of myself that played accordion and practiced accordion at my grandpa's house uh, while he listened. And we we're having this intersection of the adult version of myself moving back from the big city back into this home. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a nod to that. Uh, you know, I see the, the accordion version, the, the little kid version playing that song uh, and also the childish spirit of um, kind of playing around with, like I said, the magical realism. And, and then we also sped it up. So when I follow myself yeah. into the, the house, it's just kind of a, it's, you can, you get the, you know, that it's not real. And in my opinion, when you're making a documentary, as long as the audience knows everything that, you know, you're not deceiving them. They know that that's not a documentary shot. That's not cinema verite. <laughs> no, I thought it was genius actually, because I got the metaphor and uh, I just thought that was beautiful. The other thing is I do think that you, you play the piano. We saw you in the movie playing the piano. We see you playing the accordion. Did Was your piano playing and your accordion music woven into the score? I think it must have been. Yeah, it was. So there was a few cues that I wrote that were performed both on screen and then also it faded into the score. Um, the James is a much better musician than me. So at any time possible, I... Uh, deferred to his performance and composition because it's just so much there. The layers that go into writing a score um, are so much different than me as a musician performing a piece that feels relevant in the moment. Um, so to make that comparison, there's a scene in the film where I go to this concert hall in Heppenheim where my grandpa was in the prisoner of war hospital and they open up this beautiful concert hall, unlock this priceless Steinway piano and I'm just left there to kind of improvise and play in the moment. Um, so that piece is really part of the documentary more so than the score, because it shows me playing a song for my grandpa. You know, I, I make the comment that I don't think um, he ever heard the music echo out from the concert hall. Um, but, you know, I would like to think that maybe he can hear it now, though that wasn't yeah, that was the necessarily in the dialogue. I thought that was a little too on the nose, but that's what I was trying to imply. Yeah, that was and beautiful. You look at the score and the score is much more of, you know, it's an entire conversation. It establishes characters in the first minute. Then these characters come back in different themes. Uh, it connects two places in time. Um, so it's it's a much bigger thing that has to speak to 
to every scene. Whereas the stuff that I played was, like I said, more of a performance within the film. Yeah. I, I do love how you wove those move those personal moments in there. And I do think the storytelling uh, was really one of the strongest parts of this piece uh, because it just was very clear um, that this was a personal journey, but you really were telling a story, the story in a way that made us want to lean in, you know, and hear more and get to know you yeah, and, and your grandfather. That's worth mentioning a little more about too, because I think any filmmaker needs to, to, to needs to lean into their voice more. I think sometimes we're told don't use voiceover, which you know, sometimes don't use voiceover, but what you need to do is always use the best tools that are available to you as an artist. And sometimes, you know, that filmmaker is a great writer and their voice speaks to the subject of the film, similar to your film. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, you take out your voice and it becomes a totally different film. And in a lot of ways deconstructs some of the most meaningful parts of it. Um, In my film, you know, I'm a musician to take out the pieces of me that I'm trying to express uh, musically literally on screen, you know, that's just a tool that I have that's um, helps me express what I'm trying to do. So reflecting on, you know, when you go to make a film, think about why am I the person that should be telling this story and what tools do I have that I can pour into this that are unique to me. And that's a great word. Yeah. Great word of advice. Yeah, that was true. I I did not want to narrate. I did not want to be in my film from the very beginning. I said, I'm not going to do that in the end. I didn't have the money to hire Peter Coyote, nor the time. And uh, it ended up, everybody just kept saying, it's a much stronger story if you tell it. And you're right. I was afraid. I was afraid. I was like, I don't want to make this about me. I want to make this about the subject. And it is a fine line to walk. Um, And it's good that you have Carrie there. I had my editor there to say, that's a little bit too much about you. Let's go back to the story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Actually, I want to talk about that too. And that's something Carrie could probably uh, talk more about than me, but the constraints that money bring liberate you creatively in a way that the most, the biggest budget in the world could never do. Meaning like, for us, um, we didn't have enough money to animate more than we had in the film. But because we only were able to have that amount and the conversation that we had with the animator about kind of the minimalistic look of it kind of formed creatively what it needed to be. You know, if we had all the money in the world, I think we would have thought we needed more animation and it needed to be, you know, more movement within that animation. And, and in reality, that would have broken it down. But because, yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the animation. We didn't talk about that last time, but the animation that you do have is phenomenal. And it's so helpful. Like it really helps you imagine what the river crossing would be or what it would like to be in that, you know, the boxcar. I thought the animator was fabulous and the sound effects that went along with that were super helpful. Um, Great stuff. Definitely good choice. He, uh, Drew Christie did us a huge favor on that. We, like Mark said, we absolutely couldn't afford him. He's phenomenal. Um, and he was phenomenal to work with. That was our first time working with an animator and, um, Mark directing an animator of what he wanted to see. Um, it was just so when he would send the, you know, the mock-ups back, we were just blown away. You know, he had characterized each of these characters on a piece of paper that was so, um, communicative of who they were just he just nailed it and um as a documentary producer you don't think 
animation first necessarily. And if you think animation, you're like, ooh, I don't know how that's going to go, how that's going to fit in. Um, but the the reason we felt strongly that we needed the animation is there were holes in the story that we didn't have footage of and we didn't know how to convey. Um, and then the other thing is we found a book of uh, sketches from prisoners who were with Silvio in the camp. And we thought, well, Mark thought, you know, if we could just, you know, kind of draw from that for the artistic direction on that, if we could create something like that, this feeling of minimalist, you're, you know, all you have is charcoal to sketch. Um, that's kind of where that came from. And that's why we felt strongly that it would work. And we were just so grateful to work with Drew on that. He yeah. really did a great job. That goes back to the that original thing of like, if you feel it as a director, as a filmmaker, when you experience something for the first time, if you feel something, write it down. Because that's what your your whole job is to get somebody else to feel that. And when we saw these prisoner of war drawings, they were so simple, so minimal, but you just felt like the weight of this experience and the emotions that they were conveyed in. So we thought, you know, okay, write that down. This means something. Now let's go to the animator and feel like, is it possible to try to bring that same type of emotion? And Drew did. I think, oh, that's beautiful. We're, I'm going to highlight what you just said, because I think that is so beautiful for filmmakers. It is important, no matter what we're making as a you know documentary filmmakers, that we are making this so that people will feel what we felt. So we do need to make a note of what moves us in a moment so we can convey that and our audience can experience the same thing. Yeah. And come back to those notes because you'll edit, you'll get notes from other people and it's possible to lose that, but you have to realize and know that it meant something that first time. And somebody's going to watch this film for the first time and they're going to feel it too. So you have to, that's when you, you have to fight for things that you know or, you know, integral to the emotional arc of the film. Cause otherwise you can get technical and, and you get a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And if you lose that magic, that's tragic. Cause yeah, you felt it. And now no one's going to feel it again. Yeah, it was great. Beautiful, beautiful word of advice. Uh, I also want to address the maps. I thought the maps were hugely helpful. Uh, I thought that you, the, you know, you animated them well, you integrated them in a perfect way in the story. Uh, did he do those maps as well? Or did you have a motion graphic, a different motion graphic person do them? Or did you do them yourself? No, Drew did those as well. And they're based okay. on the um, maps from uh, the actual reports and, you know, accounts of the the soldiers on the front line. So the how they um, moved into Metz to liberate the city and the whole um, issue of, of the capture with Silvio, that map was drawn by actual soldiers who were there. Um, wow. And then he just kind of extrapolated that out to show the movement across the, the whole, um, across France and Germany. Super cool. Well, I do want to point out a couple of things as I was watching your movie. I realized that today is the anniversary of the liberation of Metz. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. I, yeah. We didn't plan this, but I think it's very special that we're we're doing this. And thank you for calling attention to that. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and I know that in Mets, they you know they take this day so seriously. So they're mm -hmm. they're having um, celebrations and um, commemorating that as well. And we were we were able to show a work in progress there um, in 2019. So 76th a while ago. year, yeah. 76th. But next year's the 80th. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think we should try to make it back and, and show the film and at least be there for the, the commemorations because it, it is a special time. It's an amazing idea. Um, I remember C.O. Bauer, when I interviewed him, uh, again, he is um, in our film, The Girl Who Wore Freedom. He's kind of the heart of it, uh, still alive and doing well. He turned 100 uh, back in May. And he talked about those liberation ceremonies and how they just – uh, completely transformed his heart and, you know, just made him feel so loved. And you'll hear him testify to that in our film. It was a very big, big deal for that town to be liberated because so many Americans were lost, including C.O. Bauer getting wounded and, you know, having to leave the war altogether. So this is a very big day for those people in Mets. And yeah, I'm and glad it, that you have told their story. It also shows, uh, similar to your film too, that this connection between France and the United States. And uh, I think, you know, to, to be stereotypical, people often talk about like, oh, you know, you go to Paris and they don't like Americans. And we're like, well, then you should have gone to Metz and you yeah. should have talked about, you know, this particular point in history because we could not buy ourselves dinner. Everyone yeah. was just. It's they treat you like you liberated, you know. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I remember C.O. Bauer's line in our film. He said, if you can get back to um, places like Metz, where they were blown down and they know they can't honor you enough. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. That's amazing. Um, That's so as true. As opposed to being here and people not really knowing what you're doing. So yeah. now there was another date that I noticed. Um, yesterday was the date, I think, of the liberation of your grandfather at that camp, November 21st. Is that true? Or no, uh, that was in May. No, yesterday yeah, yeah. was the day he went to the hospital. That was it. Yesterday okay, yeah. was the day he was sent to hippity hop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that sounds more like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yep. So that that's part of what um, Joey was able to find with footsteps researchers at the local archives in Heppenheim was the the original records from that hospital, which it's just amazing. I mean, there's so many databases and archives out there that you almost need a professional. You do need a professional you, you um, have because to. otherwise you, you'll miss things. And part mm -hmm. of making documentaries is trying to fill in gaps and, and provide, you know, uh, another piece to that collective narrative. So who did your archival producing because you had great archival footage, you had amazing archival photos who helped you with that. That, that was, was me. That was curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, I think that what made it, Again, to Mark's point of like sometimes the restrictions that you have make you even more creative um, that I, we did during COVID. So I didn't have the chance to travel to any of these archives. So I just had what was already digitized. And, you know, in some cases I would write like uh, the Imperial War Museum in uh, London um, and worked with them from afar to help. Hopefully they had something for us to use. And they did indeed. Um, so I worked with a lot of different archivists um, at, you know, you know, national um, archives, but also we worked with, you know, on message boards of like, hey, you know, does anyone have any photographs from this time? There are a lot of collectors that do, and they were so helpful to share that stuff with us. So some of um, the, you know, we had, maybe they didn't all make in the film, but we had a lot of photos that people had, you know, found in garage sales and things and done the research to find out what they were pictures of. Um, so yeah. that was, there was like high level national archives research into the archival footage. And then also like 
community outreach, just trying to find. And we worked with somebody for the train footage, all the all the footage of the trains. There was a man in Germany who just had footage of trains during the war. Like amateur. And yeah, he had a whole reel soldiers of it. had recorded. It was amazing. Yeah. So we yeah, we got our footage from all over the place. I just don't um, know. That's just a, that's a miracle that right there. That's just crazy. <laughs> Speaking of shooting, you know, you talked about how um, you know, your filmmaking was something that you always wanted to do and you felt like, you know, it was important to tell your grandfather's story through film. I found it fascinating because he was an amateur filmmaker himself. It seems, it seems he, he loved uh, taking his little camera out and filming his family. And I love that you put that in the film. That was one of the biggest surprises, believe it or not of this film. Nobody in my family has any memory of him ever having that camera. And I think until we showed them with him narrating it himself, I think they still would have been like, nah, I think that was probably your grandma doing the actual recording, not him. But it was, in fact, him. He did have this camera. And uh, I think that was part of my fascination with the film, too, is it was discovering how my grandpa expressed himself um, through the letters that he wrote, through, you know, the the hand-drawn maps where he had tried to, you know, account for where he was. And then also through these amateur video recordings um, and the fact that he kept them. And, you know, I think that just goes to show that these things, if you feel called to, to express yourself artistically or some way, uh, you never know who's going to stumble across that box in the attic and what it's going to mean to them because the, they were pretty simple recordings, but there was so much in them. You know, he yeah. was narrating his moment in time. He showed us what his truck looked like. He showed us how much snow <laughs> there was and his reaction to the snow. And it just, you know, it preserved a piece of him that now we have forever that we didn't know existed. Yeah. It's beautiful. Well, um, we have, you've given us so much time. You've been so generous. Uh, I just have loved talking about this film. Really appreciate you being here. We're going to move into our uh, favorite segment, DocuView Deja Vu. All right. So this is the segment where we recommend films to people that we think that they should see that we love. So what you got? So I love that you do this because I think with so much access to all of the streaming and all these platforms and everything at our fingertips all at once, we're watching more films than ever, but I think we're forgetting what we're watching more than ever. So when you asked, you said, what's something good you've watched recently? I was like, man, I haven't seen anything lately. And then I looked at like my log of stuff that I keep track of that I watched and I've watched, you know, tens, twenties, thirties of great films in the last six months um, that have changed my life. But the problem is we're not reflecting on it enough. So mm -hmm. shout out to your section that that calls attention to uh, the stuff that we watch that that keeps us going. And the one that I want to um, bring up, it's called Minding the Gap by <laughs> Bing Liu. Yeah. And it is, it's just a fantastic personal story, uh, which starts off feeling slice of life uh, about this skateboarder who grows up in Rockford, Illinois. Um I think personally, I, I was drawn into it because I, I grew up in a small town surrounded by skateboarders in uh, Wyoming, you know, kind of a, a cold place that a lot of people as kids are trying to get out of and, and maybe find their way back later in life. But I really responded to his um, way of expressing himself through making skate films growing up with his friends. And we enter this world uh, of him coming back as a filmmaker to explore how skateboarding has played a role in their life. and. Um, 
it quickly morphs into something much bigger, uh, not just about skateboarding, but about um, fatherhood and about friendship and about the different phases of life we go through. And he's an incredibly brave filmmaker because um, he goes at it in a personal way. Uh, he confronts things from his past. He talks to his family about things that um, they haven't talked about. And I think that um, that was a journey that I shared a, a little piece of in Dear Sirs, um, though he did it in a very different way, uh, talking with his mother. But I think it's a film anybody should watch. It has the skateboarding action, the sound design, the way they incorporate the sound of skating into um, kind of this gritty narrative. Uh, it's also about a part of the world that I'm, I uh, really respond to these Midwestern stories uh, of cities that you don't necessarily hear about on the front page often. Uh, and Bing is just an incredible filmmaker, auteur. So go out and watch it. I think it's on Hulu right now. Okay, um, great. If not, you can find it out there somewhere. It's yeah. a great distribution. So Awesome. Um, okay, so mine is going to be, I think I talked last time about... <laughs> Harry and Megan. Uh, I have watched this documentary series at the time. I'd only seen the first episode. Now I have watched all of it. I still find it incredibly fascinating. I would recommend it uh, just because it gives you this unbelievable insight into someone that has lived a world we will never experience. They tell it in a very personal way. And you realize that these famous people are just regular human beings deal dealing with, you know, crazy in-laws or diapers or whatever. Um, and so it is on Netflix and I would, I would recommend it even if you're not interested in any of the Royal story. Uh, it's a fascinating story, the way they tell it, the way they've written it. So that's my recommendation for today. Right. I have not watched it. So I, uh, I have something to watch now. I, have, yeah, I wasn't really super interested in the beginning. I really only watched it because I got addicted to suits and I finished suits and I really loved Meghan Markle in that. So I was like, Oh, well she's did this. So Mac is still watch her. I wonder if she's, you know, like she is in the movie. And, uh, so it was, that was what started it. But then I really did get sucked in. <laughs> All right. Well, Christian, well, thank you yeah, for, it has been um, so nice to have you. Sharing yeah, a piece of your you. story, giving us a platform to share ours and, uh, you know, hopefully bringing the community closer together. It's we're beginning filmmakers uh, every day. I tell people it's like no one is a veteran filmmaker. Everyone starts fresh every day on the project they're working on and has to solve the problems of that day. So um, you give filmmakers the tools to keep doing that, including us. Yeah. Thank you. That's Appreciate what we that. hope. Well, you are welcome. Where can people watch Dear Sirs right now? Um, you can go on our website at dearsirsfilm.com and you can uh, stream it or buy DVD at the store page on there. And we also have educational distribution through New Day Films. So if you're a teacher or, or a professor, um, you can use that in your classroom as well. So beautiful. On PBS for the next three years, we just had a really great broadcast on Veterans Day um, across the U.S. And then the next big one to look out for is Memorial Day. So great. Popping around for the next couple of years, hopefully. And do you have an impact screening coming up that people could attend? We just wrapped up a huge group of them for Veterans Day. And so I don't think we have any coming up. Um, we're kind of done for the holidays, but uh, we post them on our on our screenings page on our website. So you can check if we're coming towards you. Um, okay. There. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Bye, everybody. 
The Documentary First podcast is a production of Documentary First Productions. Help us create more educational and inspiring filmmaking content and share more stories of service by supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash documentary first. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can discover our awesome entertainment industry content as well as our moving historical stories and possibly learn some new things along the way. Bye, everybody.